G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither arose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and bought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be bought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him.
Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing? Good. Some of us are good. It is a good day to be in church. If you're new or visiting today, and I've just met some newcomers, a special welcome to you. Let me echo Steph's big welcome. Uh, We're a church who wants to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And we do that every Sunday uh, through a lot of ways, but the main meal of that is diving in and feasting upon God's Word. We're going to see a bunch of feasts today in His Word. Uh, We're going to have a feast ourselves uh, as we share in the Lord's Supper uh, after the sermon. Uh, But today, a joy to enter into this epic drama uh, of Esther again. We're in Esther 5 and 6, and today we pick up where we left off last week. Our Bible reading uh, that we just had read out for us then did jump forward a little bit. So I'm going to fill in the, the, the gaps because we, we, as we enter into Esther 5, there's, there's tension hanging in the air that we were left with last week, unresolved. Uh, a lot of times when we read the Bible, particularly some of these stories in the Old Testament, it, it just tells us very matter-of-factly, this happened and then that happened and these people did this and those people responded in that way. Well, the author of Esther isn't doing that for us. The author of Esther is a complete hype beast trying to pump up the tension, have us sit there in the midst of what is going to happen. And that's exactly where we were left last week. We are being led along a plot line full of colour and irony and humour and tension. And so this author is the ancient equivalent of a modern day TV scriptwriter. Uh, and thinking about that, and, and I was reminded of uh, one particular TV series and episode that I watched way back when, uh, The West Wing. Was anyone a fan of the, the West Wing back in the day? You know, back when there used to be ads, uh, The West Wing was a thing. Uh, and that was perhaps one of the most popular episodes in this series. It was the final episode of season two called The Two Cathedrals. Uh, and it is rated 9.7 out of 10 on IMDb. That is incredibly impressive. Just 0.1 below Sleepy Time by Bluey uh, on IMDb uh, as well. But almost the perfect TV episode. Uh, If you don't know, The West Wing is a series about kind of US politics and it follows uh, President Jed Bartlett uh, and he has to kind of lead in the midst of an incredibly... An incredible amount of complex plot lines that are all kind of coming together. And particularly, they are coming together in this episode. He's covered up the fact that he's got a chronic illness. Uh, He didn't tell the public, and so that might compromise his ability to uh, run for office again. There's a coup taking place in Haiti or Haiti, uh, that the US is going to have to get involved in soon. There's a tropical storm descending upon Washington for a once in a 100-year weather event. And to top it all off, he's just lost his personal assistant, Mrs. Landingham, to a car crash caused by a drunk driver. This all happens leading up to this episode, and this episode kind of pivots around the um, funeral of Mrs. Landingham. And in preparation for the funeral, we uh, get a flashback uh, to when he first met his assistant, Mrs. Landingham. Uh, He met her uh, by being introduced by her father, who was his school principal. And at the time, his father uh, tells Bartlett off for smoking in the school chapel. It's offensive. It's inappropriate. And then the story goes on, and Mrs. Landingham is often uh, encouraging young Jed Bartlett to stand up to his father because he's, he's an emotional, distant man. He's overbearing. And we fast forward to the events of the day, of the, of the episode, uh, and there's a funeral. And after the ceremony, the president asks his chief of staff to, to let, let the agents clear out the cathedral. 
He wants to have a moment with God himself. And there's this epic moment where all the the pressures of all those overwhelming things that are happening are all coming to a head and they reach boiling point. And so the president there is standing in the cathedral and he finally gets the guts to stand up to his father. But it turns out it's not his biological father. It's his heavenly father. And so he swears at him in English and in Latin. He claims that he's been abandoned, that God hasn't been fair. All the good that he's done in his life and throughout his career has been ignored. And instead, God's just toying with him. The providential father causing grief to one of his beloved sons. And at the end of his speech, as a bit of an up yours to the Almighty, he, he takes out a cigarette, lights it, and puts it out on the cathedral floor. And so you immediately see why uh, the series, the, the episode, is so well regarded. It's powerful in its authenticity, but even more so, it, it's able to tap in to raw human emotion. Sometimes we have moments just like that in our lives. You know, if it was one thing that was going wrong in our life, we'd probably be able to get through. But when there are 11 things all happening simultaneously in our lives, the emotional weight is too much and we start to break. And in those moments, whether we're Christians or whether we're not Christians, all of us as humans seems to, seem to kind of expose within us an inherent conviction we have that when life is a complete mess, it's God's fault. God has let this all happen to us. And so we go to him and pour out our frustration and maybe at best we humble ourselves before him, but at worst we berate him and curse him for his painful providence. Well, we're going to, as we walk into to Esther 5 today, uh, we're walking in the midst of circumstances that, that might, we might understand why the characters in this story could respond with anger, with frustration, and blaming God for the predicament of God's people at this moment. Because we walk into a story where God's people are exiled far away from God's place of promise. A bitter enemy of God's people, Haman, he's prime minister, essentially, of the empire. He's 2IC. And at his hand, God's people have been given a death sentence by being written into law that they will be killed. And so we enter Esther 5 and the whole world is waiting for this genocide to take place. It's a mere matter of months away. Even the Jews that returned to Jerusalem, those faithful and passionate ones, they thought they were doing the right thing. But being part of the empire, they too sit now under the death sentence. And so Mordecai and all the Jews across the kingdom, their skins being scraped by the sackcloth that they're wearing, ashes have been poured over their head, and their public lament will pour it into the streets and everybody will be able to see that death is hanging over the Jews. And so we might understand if Mordecai responded by cursing and Mordecai responded by lighting a cigarette and putting it out on the floor of the synagogue. Or we could respond a different way. Some of us lament what happens in the world and what happens in our lives and it drives us from God. Others of us lament what happens in the world and what happens in our life and it drives us to God. Matt Chandler says, The world is not random. There is one who is in control and I might not understand how he's sovereignly reigning and ruling, 
but I can trust he's better at it than I am. Last week, we got a sense that that trust might be building. Esther finally responded and stood up for her people, resolving that she's going to go into the presence of the king. It's illegal, it's life-threatening, but she's going to go on in and plead for her people. And the rest of the Jewish people across the kingdom were praying and fasting for this moment. They were praying that the God who providentially saw them get into this mess might providentially deliver them. So we're going to turn to Esther 5 and we're going to see her go on in. We're going to talk through the chapters, uh, the tension of these chapters under three headings. Uh, and, and through them, I hope that we might find out how we ourselves can learn to trust God in the midst of his providence, his, his rule and management of the world, including our lives, that we might trust him in those moments. Let's learn that from this passage. So let's first talk about Esther and her political prowess. There's been three days of prayer and fasting. And then we read, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. The author really wants us to know where she was standing, where he was sitting, because he wants us to know that the king is absolutely going to see Esther standing outside the door. And she's not dressed in sackcloth and ashes. She is dressed in the authority, the credibility of her royal robes. And so she puts herself strategically right there in front of the door, within the the line of sight of the king. And so here we're seeing this endangered believer walk on into the center of the worldly powers at the time. That That she might be the mediator between the king who holds all the power and the people who are currently on death row. Thankfully, he sees her, verse 2, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And so for all the tension that, that we've been hanging over us this past week, I don't know if you had sleepless nights this week, what's going to happen? Maybe you flipped forward and you, did, you, you kind of cheated this week to see what, what was going to happen in Esther chapter 5. And it's all there in one verse. The, the anti-climax, the tension resolved. At least one tension in the story resolved. He's not going to kill her for coming into his presence uninvited. And we see in the text that something has shifted from now on. Because from this point forward, most of the time that Esther gets mentioned, she's going to be called Queen Esther. As if this kind of access she's been granted is now lifting her into the dignity and the authority of her royal position. Verse 3, the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. Providentially, again, Esther has caught the king in a good mood. Uh, what he says there is not so much saying, hey, you can ask for 49.99999% of my territory, my money, my people, and you're going to get it. But rather, it's a figure of speech as if to say, hey, I'm in a good mood. You should try me. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. We read that and we think, Esther, this is your opportunity. 
You were meant to go in and plead on behalf of your people. And instead, she wants to hold a feast. Well, Esther knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. More than that, she's got a strategy. She's, she's, the synapses in her brain are working overtime. She is working out a strategy. The plot thickens. We'll read the next few verses. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is it you wish? What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be granted. It shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And so Esther's been asked twice now what she wants, and both times she has signaled that she's not quite yet ready to ask what she wants. Instead, she wants to prepare another feast, another banquet. Uh, now, whenever I'm doing marriage preparation uh, with some of the couples in our church who are preparing to be married, you know, through the course of marriage prep, you, you talk about the, the big things, the big ticket items to prepare for marriage. Conflict, resolution, communication, among other things. And my hot tip for how to do conflict resolution and communication well, how to, how to enter into a hard conversation is, you know, you've got to bring the harder subjects up when you're both in a happy place. You don't bring up issues in your marriage while you're putting your head down on the pillow at night and you're about to fall asleep because you're going to have a sleepless night. You don't bring it up while the, while the kids have got the crayons in their hands and they're heading for the freshly painted walls of the living room and you're scurrying around trying to look after them. No, you bring it up when things are going well, when you got a, 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 you know, you're on a date night, the kids are being looked after, you've got a glass of red, you've got a medium rare steak. You raise, how's our marriage going? And you start to talk about things when everybody knows we're for each other. We want this to go well. Well, apparently Esther knows this naturally. She's read How to Win Friends and Influence People. She knows she needs another feast. And so she asks for a second feast. But there's something else going on here in the Persian culture here. By the end of the story, we're going to see that Esther's been asked three times by the king. What is it that you want, honey? What, what can I do for you? Up to half of my kingdom. And in doing so, she's essentially locking in the approval of whatever it is that she will ask. Because after three asks, the king can't not approve her request without losing face. And one author says about this context, face is all the empire can offer. And so notice here the political prowess of Queen Esther. She has been very strategic, working within the system of the empire. And it's a very interesting dynamic and one that we're perhaps increasingly becoming more aware of as we, as Christians, live within an empire, live within a, a world where once it perhaps got you some street credit, got you some, got you some social clout to be a Christian, now becoming increasingly fraught with uncertainties. How do we navigate, navigate living in the world but not of the world while well, we want to advocate for the values that we think would love our neighbours well? While well, we want to help our friends and our family consider Jesus and ultimately commit to him. 
We've heard of Daniel in this series already. Daniel is famous for standing up and refusing to bow to uh, statue, refusing to pray to the emperor. He wouldn't compromise his worship or his prayer life. The situations are different, but the dangers are the same. And yet Daniel and Esther, they take different strategies in response. Esther could have strutted into the king's throne room. She could have told Xerxes how unjust this law is that has been signed into law. She could have launched a political action group for the Jews. But Jesus himself, years later, would give this instruction to his disciples. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's something wise about what Esther is doing here. She's, she's considered this. She's thought about this. There's an emotional intelligence, a reading of the room, the ability to, to wisely consider what's going to work with this king and win his favor. And so we can learn from her example, just as we learn from Daniel's example. If we want to live in the world, but not of it, if we want to win and persuade people to consider and commit to Jesus, if we want to go about our life in the world, conscious that, as we've seen in this series, there is a real enemy in this world. Someone who's plotting and crafting and, and scheming our downfall, our destruction. Then we need to consider. We need to be wise. We need to be strategic. We need to be thoughtful. God in his providence has put you where you are, with the people with whom you live. You should think about that. You should think about who are those people in your life that God in his providence has put there and how might you best be able to help think about their next step as they consider Jesus. The street preacher in the city where we respect his guts and his courage. We pray that the Holy Spirit might use his words. But in our day, street preachers often come across like a dude who on a first date ask his date, so how many kids do you want? It's too much, too fast, too soon. At the same time, to do nothing would be unacceptable. And so like I said, we need to think about how are we going to engage the world thoughtfully? How can we have courage and have consideration? Here we see a great mix of both. What is actually going to work in how we engage the world? Let's keep going. Haman and the king, they have an incredible feast. And we're told that Haman walked on home joyful and glad of heart. But we know that there's actually more going on in his heart because on his way home, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai, again, refuses to bow to Haman and honor his place in the world. And so Haman is triggered. He holds back in the moment, but he internalizes the rage. And when he gets home, he gets on the phone and he tells all of his friends to come on over. And as his friends come on over and join his family, he has a party to his own glory. And at the end of the party, he stands up and he essentially gives a toast to himself. 
He's talking about how, you know, what his net worth is. He's talking about how connected he is. He's talking about how much honor he's getting at work, how much potential there is for even more honor. And then he ends his speech by saying, for all of that, I can't stand it. Mordecai still exists. His pride can't stand Mordecai. Now, you would think that, that his wife, good advice usually comes from wives, his, his, his wife would, would say, Honey, you're better than this. You've got to do, you do you. You've know, you, you, you got to be true to yourself and, and don't worry about this Mordecai guy. Don't let him play such a big part in your head. Don't give him that brain space. Well, instead, his wife, Zeresh, she says, yeah, maybe you should kill him. Actually, maybe you should hang him from a gallows 25 metres high. Actually, maybe you should do that tomorrow. And then the friends hear this and they're like, yeah, 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 I know a guy. He could could build, he could do a night shift. He could could build something for you. I'll I'll hook you up, here's his number. And Haman thinks, this is a good idea. And so sure enough, he calls the builders and they put in a night shift and they build these 25-meter high gallows. So this is Mordecai's crucify him moment. He has been personally now sentenced to death. And so let's talk about what happens next. Let's talk about the king sleepless in the citadel. Now, one hot tip for for reading the Bible uh, is uh, something we learn at Bible college. I'll give you this for free. is to think about the structure of a book. You know, in ancient times, this wasn't a literate society. And so often the ways that the information was put together would help people pass the story on through oral transmission. And so in ancient writings, the structure of the book, the authors would often put it together in a way where it was kind of like all building toward the center, toward the middle. Technical term is a chiasm. For you, you should call it a burger. You got bread on either side. And in the book of Esther, there is clear bread on either side. In Esther chapter one, the king throws a banquet. We're going to see in Esther chapter 9, the Jews, they throw a banquet. And not to give away the rest of the story, but there are matching kind of things that happen all through the story that lead to the meat in the middle. Well, right now, we come to the meat in the middle. Esther chapter 6 is the meat in the middle. And, And there's a particular singular verse that is right at the heart of Esther that we're going to get to in a moment. But we're told that the king can't sleep. Another one of those signs of God's obvious providential dictating of events. And so because he can't sleep, he asked for a scrapbook. One where all the good things that have happened are recorded. And he hears that story that we heard at the beginning of the series about how Mordecai came across a plot to assassinate the king and he was ultimately able to thwart that plot. Mordecai was never thanked and so the king wants to thank him. Then in the morning, chapter 6, verse 4, Haman walks in with his own bright idea. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman's there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. And so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, hmm, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman's pride is all-consuming, so all-consuming that it causes him to misunderstand what's happening here. 
He's already the 2IC of the empire. He's already the prime minister. But he sees this as a moment. He can, he can kind of have a promotion for a day. And so he thinks to him, how can, I, how can I get some of that glory that Xerxes has, that Ahasuerus has? How can I take that and have that for myself? And so he tells the king, thinking that it would be for him, let this man play dress-ups. We're in a world here where image is everything. Image is reality. And so if you put on the royal robes, if you put him on the royal chariot, if you have someone walking before him, holding the royal crown, shouting, here is the man whom the king delights to honor, it is as if he is the king. And then here comes the verse that's at the center of the whole book. Chapter 6, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That is a beautiful and comical irony. Mordecai, the one whom had a personal death sentence hanging over him, is going to be exalted into the king's place. And that verse tips us just over the hill. You see, to this point in the story of Esther, we've been running uphill the whole time. It's been dark. It's been heavy. It's been painful. Now, everything is going to start reversing from this point forward. It's going to trigger a a waterfall, reversal of fortune. Mordecai, the one with the death sentence over him, is going to be exalted as the king. Haman, the one with all the power in this story up until now, the one who has prepared gallows for his enemy, is now going to start to fall. Mordecai, who was going to be crucified, who was going to be hung upon a tree, he's now going to be celebrated amongst the people as the king. Should remind us of something. And so Haman runs, whole, runs home again, humiliated. And this time we're told, just at the end of our, our chapter, Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so now it's Haman who's in the sackcloth and the ashes. And the party guests are looking for whatever excuse they can because they have put Haman right in the middle of this mess. You should have told us that this guy was one of God's people. And so notice that at the center of the book, the hook on which this whole drama of the story of Esther pivots, we've still got a little bit more to play out just yet, but it pivots around the king's sleeplessness. God doesn't need to be mentioned in this story, yet we know who is in charge of the king's sleep. You see, sometimes we think that for God to be at work in the world, we need to see the miraculous. We need to feel the goosebumps. We need to see signs and wonders. We need to lay out a fleece and it it, it to be obvious and clear that God is involved in this particular decision or this particular circumstance or moment. And of course, emotions are important. And if our emotions aren't engaged with God, perhaps we need to be corrected in the opposite direction. But here we see that in the midst of the silence, in the midst of seemingly this ordinary sleepless night, 
Actually, God is the one controlling the king. Actually, the one who, uh, God's power is keeping the king awake, seemingly at the beginning for no reason. And yet in his providence, the most important reason for all, that he might reverse all that has happened and come upon Mordecai and the Jews. And so what if we to think about God's providence, God's rule and reign of the world? What should comfort us? That he is always at work. In your life right now, you might not be able to point to specific, explicit things where God is at work, or you could point at everything. Because God is at work in your life. God is at work in our church. God is at work in the world through his loving rule and reign. And that should comfort us as the people of God. More than that, God's providence should empower us, like Esther, to join in the work. Not to sit on the sidelines and just kind of wait for what he does, but to join him in his providence to join him in his rule and reign of the world and be a part of playing some tiny little portion of responsibility in the midst of his sovereignty. And finally, God's providence can can assure us that his plans and his purposes will always come to pass and they'll come to pass for his glory and for, as we see here, his people's good. Let's land the plane by summarizing what we've seen here and lead into sharing communion together. Let's finally talk about good news of God's providence. The story in Esther 5 and 6, as with so many of these stories we look at in the Old Testament, they are a microcosm of the grand meta story that God is playing out across the entire Bible and all of human history. And whenever we read the Old Testament, I'm trying to drill this in every single week that we are in a story in the Old Testament, we need to develop some kind of spidey senses for Jesus. Because there are always things here that are pointing us forward in the Old Testament, pointing us forward to the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah. Whether it's stories, prophecies, uh, parables, whether it's uh, authorities and their decision making, whether it's prophetic moments, they point us to Jesus. And in these two little chapters here, in the middle of Esther, our spidey senses should be off the charts for Jesus. Here we have a people condemned to death, a mediator who on the third day goes before the authorities and the center of worldly power on behalf of God's people. That there's an enemy who's plotting the hanging of one of our main characters and that enemy would be humiliated while our main character is exalted. What we've witnessed here is what we see in the story of Jesus. He is the great mediator who came into the world and went into the heart of the powers of this world on behalf of his people. Through the course of his ministry, he wisely ministered in a way where he could, at the same time, accrue the righteousness that he was earning for us in our place, that he could love genuinely these people that he saw, sheep without a shepherd, and that he could avoid death until the time was right. And his hour had come. Jesus came and took on his, our greatest enemy, Satan, sin and death. The enemies that that had plotted our downfall, inciting the crowds to yell out before him, crucify him, crucify him. 
And yet we know that Jesus in that crucifixion was laying down his life for us and for our salvation. And then after mediating for us in our place before a holy God, Jesus triumphs on the third day. The Bible tells us that in that triumph, he was publicly shaming the rulers and authorities of this world as he triumphed over them. And so the three days of prayer and fasting that we entered into this chapter, this story in the midst of, remind us of the three days of nervousness and angst as Jesus' body lay lifeless in the tomb. But it's at the end of those three days that there is a shift. There's a shift in the story, the book of Esther. It's the end of the three days of Jesus' death. There was a shift in the universe. Because human history had been uphill till then. Human history had seemingly seen sin dominate until then. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, our hope rounds the hill. And now we walk on downhill with him, empowered by his grace, free because our guilt and shame has been paid for in his death. And so this story is a microcosm of the good news of God's providence for us. God is in charge of the king's sleep. God is in charge of bringing Haman down. And so you and I can know that God, the one who providentially maneuvered this story of Esther, he's been doing it all through human history, up until beyond, and he's been doing it for our sake. He's been doing it for our good. The hard stuff that you go through in your life, the the 11 things going wrong at the same time, that mess of this world that we all experience, that actually through it we can see that Jesus is the one, that he is strong enough to carry us through those things because he himself bore the hardest weight that was humanly possible to carry. God needed to come and do it. And so that will be the difference to how we respond to the mess in our lives and to God's providence. Do we trust that in those things God is at work? And do we trust that God is actually for us and for our good? Now, if we needed another picture to help us, we're going to now come to a feast. Our text is full of feasts, but there's one feast that stands more significant than all other feasts in all of human history even more than those that we read about today. Jesus knew what he would come to do. Jesus knew that the time was drawing near. And before heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, where the pressure would mount so much that he would sweat blood in his prayer before he died, he shared a meal with his disciples, the Lord's Supper. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he passed it around to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he shared this meal with his disciples to start for us a tradition that would point us to his strength and his disposition toward us. Because the communion meal tells us that in the messiest moments of all time, the death of Jesus, God was providentially ordaining that death for your good for our good. After the bread, he, he, he takes the cup and again he, he blesses it and passes it around to his disciples. And he says, take and drink, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many 
For what? For the forgiveness of sins. So that means that God's providence isn't just about making the Old Testament happen. Not just about this story in Esther. It's not just something that was active two and a half thousand years ago or even something that was just active in the person and work, life, death and resurrection of Jesus. No, Jesus says this is about forgiveness of your sin. That what he came to do was for you, was for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ has shed his blood for you in your place. That means that all things in your life, the hard stuff in which we come before him, the light stuff in which we thank him, all things are working together for your good. That you might through them be able to see and know Jesus. And so what we're going to keep, what's going to keep us in the midst of overwhelming layers of difficulty? What's going to stifle our own pride and ultimately shame the pride of the world? It's the picture of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood poured out for us. As we come before uh, the Lord's Supper, the, the communion table, we have this great reminder that our lives aren't only reliant on our own competency, on our own energy, on our own resources, even on our own body. We need someone outside ourselves to get through this life. We need Jesus giving his body for us. So we're going to remember that today. We're going to take communion together in small groups. There's four stations, two down the back, two up the front. So when the time's right and when you feel ready, we'd love for you to join us. We'll have about groups of eight or ten at a time. And we're going to partake together. And we do that so that we might be able to kind of eyeball each other. That we are God's people. We are God's family who together have been drawn into his goodness and into his grace. Communion is a family meal. And so if you are someone who is responding to God's providence in a way that sees God's goodness for you, that is, if you trust in Jesus, that he has come for you, died in your place for your sin, you are welcome to come and join us. If you want to put your trust in Jesus for the first time today, then you are welcome to come and express that by taking communion for the first time with us. But if you're here and you're still exploring Christianity, let me encourage you to just observe. Sit back and observe what we Christians are doing. And we say that each time we take this because the Bible tells us there's such a power in the Lord's Supper that we need to come before God having examined our hearts and ensured that our hearts are right before Him. And so you've got a moment to do that now as we prepare to to come down the front or the back. And I'm going to pray while I give you that moment. Pray that we might be a people who look to this story and see through it the, the greatest story that God himself is writing and sending his son for us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the events in the book of Esther. Lord, up until now, there'd been confusion, there'd been uncertainty, there'd been darkness, but now we get a glimmer of hope. And we look forward to seeing this fully realized in the weeks to come. Lord, we thank you that that glimmer of hope is contingent upon your work in the world. Lord, you set up kings, you bring down kings. You change the hearts of a king like shifting water out of a stream of a tap. Lord, you let kings sleep or you keep them awake. 
Lord, across all of our lives, you are in charge. You are in control. And God, we confess today that sometimes we have a wavy faith and we're shaken about what that means for our lives and what that means you think about us. And so, Lord, would you help our unbelief today? Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be able to know that the things that you were doing in Esther, the things that you're doing in sending your own son to die in this world, and the things that you're doing in our life, even in this moment or in seasons to come, Lord, you do for our good. That all of it is because you are so loving, so gracious, so compassionate and so kind that you are in the business of drawing sinners to yourself, of dealing with our sin and has thrown it as far from the east is from the west so that we might be made right with you. And so, Lord, we come to your table this morning, not presuming to trust in our own righteousness, but rather in your great mercy. You and you alone are our only hope. And we thank you for Jesus who compels us to see your goodness and your favor toward us. We thank you too for these gifts, this bread and this juice. We pray that we who eat and drink of them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, in obedience to our Savior Christ Jesus, may be partakers through them by faith of your body and your blood. And so, Lord, renew us now by your Holy Spirit. Unite us together as your people as we partake together and bring us together into the joy of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.